What we've seen thus far up to this point is that one of Peter's main concerns for writing this letter is that his fellow Christians living in the hostile Roman Empire would know how to endure unjust sufferings and opposition while witnessing to the glorious grace of God. That's been one of his concerns in writing this letter that we've been seeing over and over again. And what we saw last week was that he wants to see his fellow elect exiles be so secure in Christ that they are always ready to share of the hope that they have in Jesus. To watchful neighbors. Their witness to the gospel is really important to Peter. We've seen this over the last several weeks. He wants to see them radiating love, joy, and security in God. And today, we'll be moving into a passage that has several confusing elements to it that require careful examination for our understanding. This passage that we'll be studying this morning contains several theological issues that have been debated in the universal church since the earliest days of church history for 2,000 years. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer of the 16th century, said, A wonderful text this is. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. And a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament. So that I just do not know for certainty what Peter means. Well, that's my task for us this morning. And I have limited time, so I would ask that you please... Continue to heed the encouragement of Benjamin two weeks ago. Remember when he encouraged you all to be praying for both me or any preacher that's up here, as well as the Word of God as it goes out, that it would be clear and received in powerful and effective ways. Please continue to pray for me and the Word as it goes out this morning. Now, before we zoom in and work through this passage verse by verse, I want to make sure we understand the thrust of the whole passage contextually. When we interpret any passage of Scripture, we should seek to interpret the text within its context. Its literary context, the surrounding passages and the book and the style or genre of writing, the literary context, and the historical context. Who is writing to who, when, and why? We'll examine both. I want to start by drawing our attention to the bookends of this passage. 1 Peter 3.17 and 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Where we ended last week, in 3.17, Peter wrote, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. 
And after our passage this morning, Peter will pick up next week in 4.1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mindset. Peter's point is, always do what is right in the eyes of God, even when you're suffering. Since Christ has suffered, you too get this mindset. You need it. Those are the bookends of our passage, and it's very clear Peter is still concerned with empowering the church to endure unjust sufferings and opposition. And verses 18 through 22 today serve as the bedrock of the mindset required to endure well. So, the question for our study this morning is, how do these verses empower the church to endure unjust suffering as Christians in the world? That's the question that's going to guide us as we enter into this passage. Let me pray, and then we'll read the whole passage straight through before we work through it. Join me in a word of prayer. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for your glorious grace. Thank you for the privilege we have to gather here today in fellowship, in worship, in joy, to hear your word, Lord. Your word is life. Would you wrap us in your word securely? Insulate us in your word. Help us to understand the depths of the riches and the mysteries of your word, Lord. You have given it to us that we might know you and that we might live as witnesses of the gospel. So we pray that your word would go out now and be powerful and effective in our hearts and minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please join me in 1 Peter 3. We're going to read the whole passage straight through, 18 through 22. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Confused yet? This is the word of the Lord. Remember the question, how do these verses empower the church to endure unjust suffering as Christians in the world? 
What we'll observe this morning is at least three primary ways that these verses empower Christians with endurance. Let's look at the first. 1 Peter 3, 18. Right from the start, the explicit gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, what he came to do, and why, all packed within this verse. This is one of the most succinct and yet profound statements on the gospel in all of the New Testament. For Christ died for sins once for all. Now, that word for died there is the same for suffering used throughout this letter many times. So, I believe, along with the ESV translation, if that's what you're looking at, that it is more fitting to translate this word suffering. For Christ also suffered for sins. Again, look at the context. Verse 17, For it is better for you to suffer for doing what is right than in 18, for because Christ Jesus also suffered for sins once for all. The sufferings of Jesus is one of the most foundational points made over and over again in this letter. Seven times Peter grounds and connects his logic to the suffering of Jesus. It's also one of the most foundational truths in all of history. Our God suffered. Why? This verse identifies sin as the chief problem for humanity. He suffered for sins. Our sin is the only thing that separates us from God and leaves us to rot in our corruption and condemnation. Our sin is our greatest threat and our greatest enemy. You do away with that, nothing can stop you. Nothing can harm you. Not even Satan himself. And Jesus did it. Someone's allowed to get happy at that. Jesus did it. How? The just one, the only sinless one who lived in perfect harmony with God, perfect obedience, suffered and died for us. The unjust ones. Natural, born, rebels of God, worshippers of selves, disobedient in nature, attitude, and action. That's us. He suffered and died for us. The just for the unjust. That's called substitutionary atonement. And it's wonderful. It's marvelous. Atonement simply means a covering for our sins. 
It's the heart of the gospel. His death for our life. It's vicarious. His taking on our sin and the punishment of our sin that we would receive His righteousness, the forgiveness of sin, and reconciliation with God. Hallelujah. He died once for all. His death was definitive. It is finished. Nothing more needed for redemption. Hearing those words should flicker butterflies in your stomach. There's nothing else we need to do to have our sins covered. He's done it. All we have to do is believe and receive forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. That's it. Definitive. Now, this verse also makes clear the chief purpose for why he suffered. His sufferings were purposeful. That is, so that he might bring us to God. Jesus didn't merely suffer and die. He was resurrected from the dead. Verse 18, He suffered having been put to death in the flesh, but was made alive in or by the Spirit. In His suffering, death, and resurrection, Jesus made the perfect offering for sin, the great and final sacrifice in our place, which removed the very barrier caused by sin between us and God and brought us back to God. That's the gospel. Anyone who believes in this gospel of Jesus and calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Just like the little kid at dinner time we just heard about, calling out to the name of the Lord with the family. Saved. Are you saved? We hear or say often, He's saved. She's not saved. I'm saved. Are you saved? Hmm. Saved from what? I ain't burning. I ain't drowning. Saved from what? We have to know this. Christians who believe in Jesus are saved from the penalty of sin. Death and separation from God. The power of sin. The grip of corruption and perversion over us. And one day, saved from the very presence of sin entirely when we are with Him. We are saved from the judgment of God's wrath upon all evil and saved from hell. Ultimately, we are saved for everlasting fellowship with God. Saved for everlasting peace, joy, and security in God. Does that make you happy? 
saved from corruption and condemnation, saved for everlasting communion with God. Unbreakable. This verse says we are saved for the presence of God. He is with us. And therein lies Peter's first means of empowerment here. He reminds his fellow Christians of the purpose of Christ's sufferings, to bring us to God. He is with us. Contrary to what may be said, or what it may seem, or what it may feel like, or what it may make us think, suffering does not mean that God has abandoned you or is against you. He is with us. In fact, since we are following in the steps of Jesus in his sufferings, he's closer than ever. Christians are safe and secure in him. The presence of God is all we need to navigate through the tumultuous waters of life. To navigate through the headwinds of opposition and suffering. He is with us. Remember that. Now, as we move on, let's start back at verse 18 and we'll read straight through verse 20. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Okay. Now in verse 19. What do we do, before we enter into this text, what do we do when we encounter confusing texts like this in the Bible. We try to interpret what is unclear in view of what is clear. Remember that principle in all your Bible study. We try to interpret what is unclear in view of what is clear. Here, I believe Peter provides us with enough clues as to what he means. But our issue, and it's a good issue, is that he provides clear enough clues that create several frames of interpretation on this passage. Among the most common five or so, for the sake of time, I'm going to present to you what both Pastor Brian and I believe are the two most convincing positions on interpreting these verses. Keep in mind, there are a number of questions that need to be asked. And since this is not a seminary class, but rather a sermon, I'm limited 
in how far we can go. However, if anyone is interested in studying more, reflecting more on the other perspectives on this passage and other supporting clear verses that lead to these frames of interpretation, that's what I have over here, these printouts right here. So come grab one or grab them both uh, before you leave today. Some of the questions that we need to ask when trying to interpret these two verses are this. Where did Jesus go? To hell? To the earth? To heaven? Who are these spirits? Are they human spirits? Angelic spirits? What did he proclaim? The gospel? Victory? Is this proclamation back then? in the days of Noah, pre-incarnation, or now, during Peter's day, post-resurrection? And what is the purpose of the proclamation? To name a few of the questions required when interpreting this passage. I will start by laying out a case for the position represented in this very translation, the NASB. If you look at verse 19, it's not, it's not indicated on how we put the slides together here, but the editors give away their interpretation by adding one little word, now. In your Bibles, that word now is italicized, indicating that it's not in the original Greek. It was inserted there by the translators, the editors of the NASB, to clarify how to interpret this passage. As a side note, up until this week, I have been convinced of this interpretation, and I still am. Though, now, I am officially split. And that is not an easy place to be in when needing to preach a sermon on the passage. But it does go to show that both positions require a reasonable amount of credibility given to them. This first position suggests that Jesus, who was made alive by the Spirit, verse 18, also in or through the same Spirit, verse 19, in which, in whom, relative pronoun, he went, in the same spirit, he went and made proclamation of the gospel to the wicked, unbelieving humans of Noah's day, through Noah, to the disobedient humans of Noah's day who lived on the earth, whose disembodied spirits, because they're dead now, are now in prison kept in judgment. The purpose of this is clear. Noah, who faced great opposition as he represented and preached the righteousness of God among a hostile and evil generation, themes of Peter, was not alone. Noah was not alone. Jesus was with him. 
And God demonstrated his faithfulness and holiness by bringing his judgment upon their adversaries in the flood and delivering his righteous ones, the eight, safely through the waters of his judgment. This God did the very same for Jesus himself. God preserved them. He kept them. They are saved and vindicated. The clear passages in Peter that support this are 1 Peter 1. These are the clear passages, remember, to interpret the unclear. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 11. We saw this just a few weeks ago, two chapters ago. Peter writes, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, okay, so the Old Testament prophets back then, Peter says, made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Still with me? So what is clear is that Peter, just two chapters earlier, is already thinking about Jesus through his spirit, prophesying of the grace of the gospel through his Old Testament prophets. That's clear here. What we just discussed about Noah sounds consistent. Plus, in Peter's second letter, 2 Peter 2.5, Peter writes, If God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, Peter clearly views Noah as a preacher back then to the evil generation and would then be connecting this work to the Spirit of Christ in him. Can you see that? Kind of? This position that Jesus is preaching to unbelievers through Noah in Noah's day, through his spirit, this position goes as far back as Augustine in the fourth century. And Peter's point, the purpose of the proclamation, his point here for his contemporaries in Peter's day is this. Christ is with you and indeed in you. Preach the gospel even among your hostile generation and God will preserve you. He will vindicate you and his gospel. They who reject you and revile you just like what happened at the time of Noah. They were devoured by the waters of, judge, of the judgment of God. So they among you today who resist and revile you will be devoured by the judgment of God. It's coming. That would be Peter's point. Peter will go on to say in the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the, the gospel of God? In the next chapter, where we're, what we're going to see for the next few weeks is Peter saying judgment 
is here. In the same, over the next two weeks, we're going to see Peter say, don't get caught up in their flood of debauchery. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The end of all things is near. We're going to see Peter say this in the next three weeks. This has always been the most convincing position for me and still might be, it still kind of is where I lead. It makes sense and it is very applicable then and now. I hope that makes sense, at least what I can do in this first view. The second position suggests something very different and kind of similar in ways. So track with me. Suggests that Jesus... View number two, Jesus, in his resurrected state, post-resurrection, went, as verse 19 says, he went as he was going up to be ascended to the right hand of God. That's right there in verse 22. He went going up, not descending to hell like the early church thought remember it's part of the apostles creed descended into hell not going down into hell but he went up into heaven he was ascended to the right hand of god and he proclaimed in going up while he was being ascended he proclaimed victory over fallen angels of Noah's day that Genesis 6 makes very clear were responsible for the increasing of wickedness upon mankind all throughout the world disobedient angels this is a reference to Genesis 6 from this position like the former position but focuses on the rebellious angelic spirits who were outcast from the presence of God and bound in chains for judgment. Look at Genesis 6. Now it came about when, man began, when men began to multiply. This is the earliest chapters in the whole Bible. It came about when men, when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were brought to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they took for themselves wives, whomever they chose. The Bible says in Genesis 6 that these sons of God were disobedient angels that had sexual relations with women and were eventually imprisoned for their sinful rebellion. Look, I ain't making this up. It's in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It's alluded to in the New. Peter alludes to these very angels. In 2 Peter 4, verse 5, again, at another part of the verse that we just read, he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, sounds like spirits in prison, and Jude 6 whose writings mirror Peter's so closely, says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And last but not least, in this very passage in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, 
Verse 22, in the next few verses, will tell us Jesus has gone. This is the same verb, same exact verb as he went. He has gone to the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So, in this case, Peter's point would be Jesus, like his few people back then, suffered unjustly, but they were vindicated. Christ was victorious. All angels' authorities and powers are subject to him. Likewise, we are victorious in him over our spiritual battle. Press on, Christians. You will be delivered safely through your sufferings, and you too will be vindicated. This too is very convincing. It's Brian's position, and I believe the most common today from what I understand. Besides, whether or not you accept this interpretation as it fully relates to verses 19 and 20, this is clearly one of Peter's main points in the whole passage. It's where we're ending our sermon this morning. There's something to say to that. Now, hopefully I didn't lose you too much because we need to zoom back out and understand that regardless of what frame of interpretation for these few verses that you prefer, both points are true in 1 Peter. They are both applicable then and now, and they empower believers with endurance. Verse 20 says, in verse 20, Peter makes very clear, out of the whole earth, there were only eight that were saved. Eight preserved by God through his judgment, his righteous ones. Eight only out of the whole earth were kept and vindicated. One of our primary takeaways that Peter has been trying to communicate throughout this letter and is doing again here is this. Just as he, so will we. That simple. Just as Christ suffered and died along with his people, a small minority amid a great majority, so we, if we follow him, will be kept and delivered safely. We too will be vindicated with him. Just as he, so will we. Jesus says, if that sounds good to you, come through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And it is there that few find it. Come, follow me. The words of Jesus. Peter's two means of empowerment thus far consist of showing his fellow believers, one, the presence of God. He is with us. 
to the preservation of God. He will keep us and vindicate us. And his final point we'll see in these last two verses. In 21 through 22. Let's read these. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Oh my, what time is it? <laughs> Actually, it's not, it's not as complicated as it may seem. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels, authorities, and powers had been subjected to him. Peter says, corresponding to this, the flood narrative that is, baptism now saves you. So, he's showing us that the flood narrative from Genesis was a type of baptism and is to find greater and truer meaning in baptism today in the new covenant age. To clarify, Peter has already made clear in chapters 1 and 2 that we are saved by believing and receiving the word of the gospel of Jesus by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are saved. He's already worked through that. Here, I like all the amens at that. Here, he qualifies what he means and what he doesn't mean by linking baptism with salvation. He says, salvation not in a physical sense, by removing dirt from your body, oh no. The physical act of baptism profits nothing. But rather, in the spiritual sense, that when we are baptized, we profess faith in Jesus. And in so doing, we appeal to God to cleanse us of our evil ways, our guilty consciences, and to help us walk in newness of resurrection life. That's what's going on at baptism. Like the judgment of God over all the earth, putting to death all wickedness, when we come to Christ by faith and are baptized, we identify with Christ, in his death, fully immersed in the water, symbolizing our old selves has been crucified with Christ. And then we rise out of the water, symbolizing our identification with Jesus in resurrecting life, new spiritual life. That's why here in verse 21, our appeal to God for a good conscience is through the resurrection of Jesus. You see that? This family is the power of God in us that empowers us to endure unjust sufferings. Namely, a clean conscience. A clean conscience. The power of God in us. 
Not only have our sins been forgiven when we come to Christ, but we walk continually in the newness of life with a clean conscience, family. Oh, the power of a truly cleansed conscience. It's the very fuel in this life. There is no greater fuel. It's the very wind to our sails to stay the course. Without it, you'll be rigging your way through life, trying anything just to keep on going. The headwinds are too strong. They're too strong. Paul exhorts Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience. Those are his two pieces to endure, believe and keep a good conscience. He goes on, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck of their faith. Family, you do not want to experience that kind of suffering. If you try to navigate through the turbulent waters of life as a professing Christian, yet rationalizing over your sin, compromising a little over here, a little over there, you may not make it. Your ship may be bound for wreckage. Beware. Beware, family. The flood of debauchery and opposition is powerful. You know it. Compromise is the first step to calamity. But... Peter says, if you cling to the power of God in the gospel of Jesus every day and you walk uprightly with a clean conscience, your ship is safe. You're going to make it. You're not just going to make it. You're going to be unstoppable all along the way. No matter what raging waters or what devastating stormy headwinds come your way, you are safe. For the power of God unto salvation is in you. Thank you, Peter. That's a good word. Verse 22, Peter appropriately ends this passage drawing our focus to the exaltation of Jesus. High and lifted up. His exaltation is the very thing that pulls all these points together and applies them to our lives. Look at the trajectory of the passage. Consider with me. From 18 to 22, Jesus suffered, died, was resurrected, and exalted to the right hand of God, now possessing sovereign reign over all angels, powers, and authorities. All authority in heaven and on earth is His. And He is ours. We are His. Peter's saying the mindset required to endure is one that is fixed firmly on the exaltation of Jesus now. That's where He is 
now. The exaltation of Christ empowers Christians with endurance. That's the big idea of this passage. The exaltation of Christ empowers Christians with endurance. Because Christ is seated at the right hand of God, He empowers us with the presence of God, the preservation of God, and the power of God in us. Just as He, so will we. He is the trailblazer, the way maker. As we follow Him, we too, through suffering and hardships in this life, will enter into glory and exaltation. Hallelujah. Amen. We need this word. Family, Scripture makes clear that suffering and opposition for our faith will only increase in this present evil age, in these last days. This is especially a new reality for Christians in America in our little toddler of a nation in the history of humanity, not to undermine it, because it's very real and it's powerful. Suffering and opposition for our faith will only increase. We must be properly prepared. We must heed these words, these timeless words for the church that God spoke to his people 2,000 years ago and still speaks to us today. He has purposes for us. In it, he is with us. He will keep us. He will empower us to endure. Amen? In closing, this week I heard a song by Shane and Shane. First time I ever heard it called You've Already Won. I don't know, maybe it's a new song, not too sure, but it's very fitting for this word, the chorus goes like this. I'm fighting a battle you've already won. No matter what comes my way, I will overcome. Don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done. I'm fighting a battle you've already won. That's it. The exaltation of Christ empowers Christians with endurance. Let's pray. Oh Lord, if you are for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, nakedness, danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through you, Lord Jesus, who loves us and keeps us. For we are sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen and hallelujah. God bless you all. Be wrapped in security as you go about this week.